welcome to series three of my podcast, Innovation, where we get to hear stories and experiences of incredible women from diverse backgrounds and perspectives in science and technology. Our conversation gives us insights into some fascinating innovations, but we also get to relate. Here on Innovation, I give women a platform to be seen and heard because this exact conversation is also in video format on YouTube. And honestly, every single episode is inspiring and uplifting in some way because we hear about what these women have learned along their life's journeys, both personally and professionally. This week, I talked to Fran Scott, a maker, pyrotechnician and scientist. My name is Fran Scott and I describe myself as a scientist, maker and pyrotechnician. Um, but that's only because when you're asked to describe yourself in such a small, short sentence, it's, it's really difficult, as I'm sure you find as well. Yeah, I mean, what do you make? Oh, gosh. Um, well, so I, I really, so I've always made large science props, I suppose is the way to describe it. Um, so visual, physical entities that can describe scientific and engineering ideas. Um, and I was going to say recently, but it was about 10 years ago, I got into sort of digital making. So your Raspberry Pis and your Arduinos. And so that, that physical computing element. So making things from the virtual world do something in the real world. So making pyrotechnician. Yeah. And scientist. So... I'm an engineer in, I say, every bone in my body, but I'm not a qualified engineer. So I don't like, if people call me an engineer, that's up to them. But in terms of, for me, engineering, I don't want to disrespect those with the qualifications. So I never label myself as an engineer. It's funny because we all see you as an engineer. I think <laughs> that you make stuff and you like things explode and are on fire and things like that. Like, I think that just puts you in the engineering category because it's so hands-on. I would, I would love to be, but yeah, I just, I'm quite, um, I suppose respectful. I don't, you know, for the people call me, that's, I'm very flattered, but I wouldn't go brandishing myself as an engineer. I know engineering, but I wouldn't say I'm an engineer. I'd love to be an engineer and labeled as one, but yeah, I leave that up to people, I suppose. Let's face it. Anyone that, works with raspberry pies has got to be in <laughs> so i love i love the fact that you are sort of like straddling so many different parts of like a multi-circled venn diagram and um, i i do and i don't i suppose everything that i i do all comes back to the same thing for me it's just not a category that's normal and so people are like oh you do so many different things but for me I I love making I love manufacturing and I love being a cheerleader for those who make and those who manufacture and everything I do I suppose ticks that box it's just I do it in every way possible so yes i make i also do podcasts with manufacturing firms and robotics firms but also i like to encourage the next generation into engineering and manufacturing and so i design school workshops and shows that look at all the innovation that's going on around that and so yeah for me it's all 
it's sort of in the same box, but I can see it looks quite dis like just spread out to the to the onlooker. Well, I personally find what you do so refreshing because I think it takes a lot of courage to merge different disciplines together because, you know, you end up being a trailblazer when you're merging things and going cross-discipline. And um, there has been a tendency in the past to put us in in different boxes and the fact that you have always stood strong going I'm just gonna go across all boxes mm. or many boxes takes a lot of bravery but can we start by you sort of describing your journey because you know saying you're a scientist is like a tiny mm. sentence which encompasses so much so how did it all begin with you? So I, I wanted to win, win the Nobel Prize and <laughs> that was how my journey started in science. Um, yeah, I, I did love science. I grew up on a farm, so I was very, very hands-on. Um, I sort of sometimes hark back to this time where I loved working with wood and I would go off to a field with a penknife and a bit of wood and try to make something and it would, you know, just not be great at the end of it. <laughs> Um, but it was just something that I really loved doing. And and I suppose to me, what was great was relative because I remember some of my work in um, woodwork and stuff. The teachers were like, oh, this is incredible. And I was like, oh, but it doesn't do the thing that I wanted to do. I'm not, like, so I, I loved making. Now, for me, I went to university at a time that uh, technology courses weren't counted towards your UCAS points and so you could only like some universities wouldn't accept them so I ended up dropping um technology I think it was graphic design that I was doing which sounds very paper-based but it was actually quite model-based um and I would have I would have loved to have done that but I ended up dropping it to get the right points to get into uni so I ended up taking uh chemistry biology physics and maths at mm. a level with general studies I don't think I did five and yeah five in total um then I because sorry university what I was going to do was I loved maths at the time so I was going to do uh, a degree in maths and a degree in biology in tandem <laughs> who would do that so I applied to yeah what was I thinking but I applied to a few universities like not many universities do it um but there were a few that did. But when I went to the open days, they were like, oh, yeah, the biology and maths, they go together. You've got the statistics side and then the sort of ecological and animal biology side. And I was like, oh, no, that's not the, the types of maths or biology that I like. I like the non-statistics maths and the biology. I like sort of like the, the human, the mechanical side of it and they were like oh no we don't put those together like why do they go and I was like oh they don't go I'm just interested in both of them um oh. yeah Bias engineering yeah exactly it's 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 so engineering without knowing that it's engineering and to be fair so my granddad was an engineer and my mom was like oh you would fit engineering and I was like I didn't I didn't give it the time of day that it deserved because I suppose I was scared of it to me it was like oh it's, it's something that I haven't done at a level so I'll be behind 
everyone to me it was like oh everyone's gone to the good schools and that's done engineering or Latin you know you just assume that everyone else has done it and um and I was nervous enough going to uni as it was and so I was like oh I don't want to be the bottom of the class just starting out so yeah I didn't I didn't even apply to do engineering which you know hindsight's a beautiful thing um but after I decided that doing two degrees in tandem was probably not the wisest idea um, I um, had applied for two places to do neuroscience so um, I ended up picking Nottingham to do neuroscience and it was one of these I, I call them an undergraduate master's where you do three years get one free <laughs> um, so yeah three years lectures and then one year in industry and for me, so I remember in the first um, week or two of university, they were like, oh, you can do, you know, in your uh, year in industry year, yes, you can go and work at a drugs company. And I was like, that's not me. That's not why I've done neuroscience. And um, they were like, oh, so, you know, one of you will get to go to Australia. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, I'll, I'll do that. Thanks. And they're like, oh, to do that, you've got to be top of the class. And I was like, OK, right, here goes. And so I just put my head down. And so, yeah, in the third year of uni, I got to go to Australia and study stem cells. And bear in mind, this was, what, 2004? Um, so stem cells weren't huge at the time. Um, and for me, I was like, oh, this is, this is my route to Nobel Prize. <laughs> um, but I hated it. I hated working in a lab. Um, I, looking back, I now know why I hated it. And it was because it was really inefficient and I hate inefficiency, especially if, if it's me having to do the work that's inefficient. And I didn't, I couldn't frame this in my head at the time, but so much could have been automated to free the human up. So I, I always said that I liked, and I called it the postulating. I liked the thinking, the getting the results together, thinking about what they showed, what they could show, what the next experiment could be. And basically, and I know I was very low on the rung in science, but that was probably two, 3% of my time. And the rest of the time was doing these very precise experiments that could go wrong for all manner of things. And then just trying to get results. And, and yeah, and to me, there was a lot of interpretation in the results of when you look down the microscope what sort of neuron is it and it was like well what's our category you know is there a standardization and I just got very frustrated and I suppose disheartened because I'd been there and I'd always wanted to be a scientist and win the Nobel Prize and here I was doing science and going oh it's not it's not for me um and also I'd been exposed to a lab and being exposed to a lab, I was like, this isn't my tribe, I suppose, for want of a better word. I, I didn't feel like I belonged. And so when I came back and studied my final year of my degree, um, it was actually my careers tutor at um, university that suggested science communication. And I was like, what now? And And to me, that really fueled me because I was like, oh, maybe if I can convince my people that I like my like I liked science um but my friends weren't scientists I was always friends with non-scientists 
And so I was like, oh, if I could convince people that are like my friends to like science, then maybe more people like me will feel as if it's their home, their place. Um, so even if the work isn't particularly uh, efficient, <laughs> there might be other reasons to stay. Um, or maybe they'll come with a new viewpoint to to make it efficient. So yeah, so that was the the start of my career into science communication was actually yeah, a uni, a uni careers advisor. It's so interesting when I hear you describe um, what you gravitated towards and what you didn't. Like you are a true engineer, in my opinion. I mean, the fact that inefficiency really frustrated you. You were like, so much of it could have been automated. You know, let an engineer have that thought and they'll come up with the solution, you know. Um, And so it's really it's really interesting that no one suggested it for you because, you know, in this day and age, it would be blatantly obvious that some sort of engineering is for you. I mean, the idea that you thought that two degrees in tandem would be easier than doing engineering is like, where are your careers advisors? You know? Um, So, you know, it's, I, I, I feel like I relate to you in the sense that, out of feeling a bit lost, um, we found science communication mm. because we didn't want anyone to maybe go through what we went through. Yeah, to me, um, it's like the reason I'm not an engineer means the system must be broken because I am an engineer in my DNA in everything I do. So why didn't I choose engineering? And there's a myriad of reasons. And so what I want to do is try to slowly just, you know, like a whack-a-mole, get rid of those reasons one by one. And so the younger me could be like, oh, well, yeah, I'll try engineering. But you make a good point in terms of, because, you know, when you do look back and you're like, oh, what would it have been like if I had chosen engineering? But I know engineering now is quite different to what it was, you know, 17, 15 years ago. And um, in terms of just times have moved on quite rightly. And so would I have done a degree and then been put off at a later stage? And so I suppose you, I I don't like to look back and go, oh, shoulda, woulda, coulda, I suppose. Because, I mean, also, science communication really is a very unique skill. <laughs> you know, when I look at you and the talk you did recently at the Engineering and Technology Innovation Awards, and then um, Yuande as well, who mm. we both know, and she's been on the science communication circuit as well. Like, it's just really um, listening to someone with a technical brain um speak well is really um something rare and I'm so glad you're doing what you do and what you do is so visual and so exciting and so um so inspiring uh it would be a great loss if you were tucked away in a back room somewhere (laughs) hearing you know I, 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 yeah, I suppose I take what you, you say and, um, I'm laughing because, so I got diagnosed with dyslexia in early 2020. And that to me, it, it shone a light on everything that I've done. Um, so, ah, 
so I think I, basically my job is such a good fit for my personality and my skills. Um, and when the assessor um, for dyslexia, she was saying, oh, you know, you're very hands on, but you understand technical. But language, the way you like things presented is not oversimplified, but you like the things that need to be said to be said in a certain way and presented in a really understandable way, but not for a child I suppose you know and it's like no that's and that's what I do because basically I've had to do this my entire life without knowing it and so in a way that makes me really good at doing it for other people explaining the complex I always call it seemingly complex explaining the seemingly complex in a really digestible way Mm. so what is your ambition with what you do like what's your purpose Oh, so I, I really want people to, well, there's, a, there's an overall one and there's, I suppose, a selfish one. Um, so my, my overall one is for young people to, if they have an inkling that making or engineering might be for them for them to give it a try and for them to feel like it's a home for them for them not to be excluded because it's not their tribe or they don't quite know what it is and so I suppose it's number one allow them to see what opportunities are out there and then support them to allow them to see that there are people like them in the workforce doing amazing things so I suppose I don't want a uh, a, a bones and DNA engineer to not become an engineer. That's my my bigger goal. And then I've got my selfish goal <laughs> where I just love meeting interesting people that are doing interesting things. So I say to people, if I could just spend my time going around manufacturing plants and industries and just meeting people who are making and innovating amazing things meet them talk to them see what they're playing with and I would absolutely love that but yeah to me that probably that's a selfish thing of just like I would pay to do that (laughs) I mean the landscape has changed a lot don't you think like um, absolutely like it's really going digital and it's it's when I first started out in engineering, it was very older white male. And it's just changing. Like there are some really young, cool women on the scene now who are coding and all of that. Have you seen that change? Yeah. And it's changed in, I would say, multiple ways. So, uh, well, firstly, you know, the whole manufacturing sector was absolutely turned on its head in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And and I, I was actually, I was at an exhibition yesterday looking um Maurice Brownford. Oh, I can't remember his last name, but Maurice that used to take the beautiful images of manufacturing plants and just sort of seeing these plants. And I was really lucky. I got to go and see SSI up in Teesside. So um the blast furnace and the steel making plant. And so it was very, um, I suppose, community based. And the whole family would work at the place. Now, yes, there were your white men, but there was also women. You know, it was very much like the family would go to work at 
Rolls-Royce or the steel plant. So it was very much a family and community-based thing. But it was, it, ah, although it was precisionly orchestrated, it was quite dirty work, I would say. Um, and now, obviously, manufacturing has changed a lot. There is still a lot of hands-on, but gosh, with digitalization and automation, it, it they say it's the three Ds, the dull, dangerous, and dirty. Those jobs are being done by robots, you know, jobs that perhaps people shouldn't be doing in the first place. Um, but I still do think there is this community based around industry and that's one thing that I I see because I do a lot of work with Siemens and National Grid and they are very keen to work with the schools that are in the area where they need the workforce but what they're seeing is that this there's sort of a discrepancy between the skills that they need and the skills that the people that are local have so instead of them going oh well we'll just look elsewhere what they do and this is why they bring on my company they go well let's try and train up the local people so they have the skills that we need because we want to support the local community because they see that value in that link between you know this this big industry and the local the local community but i do think it's changing i suppose just in the way that the the face of the uk has changed and the way that there is so much more freedom in terms of what we can choose to do with our lives. And so you're getting people from all kinds of backgrounds going into engineering, which is huge and just a joy to see that it's not just pale, stale and male. Like it's it's an absolute joy to just someone contact me and be like, oh, I'm really liking engineering. I'm like, amazing. Like, come, come join it because it's it's so different to how it used to be. And and the thing is, the engineering sectors are really trying to hold on to these people. So I speak to companies of where they're like, yes, we get females. But then obviously when they, you know, not obviously, but if they go off and raise a family and take time out, then it's like, how do we retain them? What can we put in place to make sure that they come back into the workforce? Because they're a really valued part of it. Um, so, yeah, it's changing in so many ways. But I think the the core values of it are still there mm. yeah I mean in terms of gender stereotyping um it's changing generally like I just feel like gender stereotypes are kind of diluting um boundaries are becoming blurred it's it's all just a non-topic no. Oh, I I hope, but I I would say I don't agree there. Like I would love to agree, but I think there's a band of people who realize that gender stereotypes are ridiculous and just hold people back. Mm. And then there's a group of people that are like, what's wrong with having t-shirts where there's only boys playing football on it? I can't believe you're triggered by something so trivial. Um well, no, of course the woman should take the time off to look after children. So I think there's actually still coming across that is today. a yeah, yeah, still today. Um and I know a lot has changed, especially as well, I'd say, in the last, gosh, even three years. 
and it is getting better, but it's it's still not there. You know, all you need to do is go around uh, a children's clothes shop and have a look at the clothes that young girls are subjected to you know the messages of be kind love everybody um and you know and the boys are like or trouble or future engineer or that type of thing so i think it's it's so ingrained in society that sometimes it's hard to see it and i think that's the big step and i was i was really disheartened i think but um so with the Sarah Everett with the protests around um all the unfortunate things that happened there i was like this is going to be amazing because people will now see this inequality that happens and we'll all try and fix it right but actually there was a lot of people even within my circles that were like well, there's no problem. Men still have problem in the street um, getting into fights. That's the biggest statistic. You know, it's gonna, you're more likely to come to harm if you're a man on the street by other men. And, and actually it took, it wasn't this, I thought that this, this inequality being revealed would make people open their eyes and then go, oh gosh, how can we help? But just the fact that the hashtag not all men was trending it really made my heart sink because, and it made me realize that actually there's so much more work to do with gender stereotyping than I thought, because it's not just a case of saying, Hey, here are the bad things that happen when we gender stereotype for both gen for all genders. Um, it actually, we've got to do more than that. We've got to actively try and help the people to see the problems Hang on, I've just got a doggy that's digging my skirting board. <laughs> Bitcoin, stop it. Bitcoin. <laughs> At least he's within grabbing distance. So, yeah, I was, so, yes, amongst people like us, I would say we see gender stereotyping and we just go, oh, God, that's so silly. But actually, it's it's really instrumental in a lot of people's lives still whether they know it or not yeah I mean I'm trying to I'm trying to establish in my own mind where we are at in engineering because um even the event that we were at um there were definitely more women there which is very refreshing to see um a lot of the speakers were female and awesome mm -hmm. um and inspiring um and um but yet it felt like a very male event so it's there is definitely more work to do but i think generally the conclusion is that it is really all about attitude because when I speak to women who are in engineering, um, the older women tell me about how they have survived and thrived in very male dominated environments. Um, and the younger women tell me about how their colleagues are actually really welcoming. Mm -hmm. well, I think it's a lot to do with um, attitudes 
I think older attitudes struggle to adjust and younger attitudes are very open to gender and it's a non-issue and they're just cool with everyone. And that's, so I'm kind of like trying to figure out like, are we still continuing the stereotypes? Yeah, I, I, I would say as well, like in all fairness to the older generations, I do think a lot of them are really trying. Um, but I would just say in terms of actually times have changed so, so much um and it's been accelerated this year you know like time has changed since I've been in the work in the workforce and so I can't imagine someone who's you know 60 65 stuff has changed so much that even so they can want something with all their heart for it to be equal but just something that was acceptable 40 years ago is now just totally unacceptable and it's just I can it must be really difficult knowing what knowing in your heart that you you don't mean to say the things that you say that are offensive but them coming out that way um so I think we should really give the older generations I suppose uh, credit for trying <laughs> but I can imagine it's very difficult um to say the right thing all the time but yeah with the younger generations it's just like oh well this is what's this is what's acceptable just like how you know how to do a pdf you know it's the same type of thing like obviously one is much more offensive than the other um but it's like it is getting so much so so much better and obviously there is i'm not saying that there's not work to do there is still a lot a lot of work to do but it it's going in the right direction yeah i feel like your your main direction in life is to encourage more people to make stuff and, and do things and engineer and be involved in manufacturing and that side of industry which is really really needed um and I feel like it's almost an aside that you're female doing that um are you do you think girls need a bit of a push and encouragement in what you do uh, i i did um mostly because and this is where the gender stereotyping comes in you know it and i'm really i can't wait until gender stereotypes are out the door because it just makes everyone's life better um and it's not just about making it better for women like it would be better for men and everyone else as well. There's like the toxic masculinity. Gosh, I, I don't know how I would cope, you know, being labeled as having to provide for my family and have to be tough all the time and never cry. Like it must be horrible. Um, but um, when I, well, I suppose I can, only, I can only speak from my point of view of like when I was growing up, you know, it was very much, and I, I still feel it a bit now, I suppose, you know, like I've been on here, oh, making sure my hair's okay and this, because as women, and there is evidence to support this, not that I can reel it off right now, you know, as women, we are disproportionately judged by the way we look, um, which I hate, um, but... <laughs> Sorry, this dog is playing with so much stuff in the house. 
<laughs> he's now got pallet wrapped that I'm going to turn around. There's going to be this dog just wrapped up in <laughs> pallet wrap. Uh, so, yeah. So, yes, we, we're judged on how we look. So when I was a teenager, it was very much like this is the normal thing to do for a female, for a woman. And in that normal thing, it wasn't wear a hard hat. And I know that not all engineering is wear a hard hat, but I do love, you know, it wasn't go into engineering, wear overalls, do this type of stuff. So actually to choose engineering would have been going against the norm. And that takes guts that I didn't have. Um, And so I think it's not just women that I'm trying to reach out to. It's everybody who thinks that this type of job is going against the normal stereotype box that they're put in to give them the courage to do actually what they love and what they're built to do rather than the rot society labels that they should do. Yeah, <laughs> clearly as a dog mum, your time <laughs> is very limited and distracted. Um I mean, it, it does spring to mind the question, like, what about juggling children in the mix of all of everything you're doing? Is it an option? Um, well, I suppose it's always, it's always an option. Um, but, and it's interesting that you ask because, so I have given this a lot of thought as I suppose, as women, so I'm now 40 and I suppose since the age of 30, every visit to the doctor has been like, so you're going to freeze your eggs now? You're going to freeze? And it's like, whoa, can we just stop with this? Um, but I've been in a really lucky position. Um, so I was always of the mind that I wouldn't have children until I could afford a two-bedroomed place to live. Um, just be- that, That's me. That's, that's, that, was my, that was my line. And... It just so happens that it's only now in the next, I suppose, six months that I'll be able to afford this two-bedroom place to live. Um, Bitcoin. He has been so naughty. Stop it. You need to behave, you little doggy. You are coming here and you're going to settle down. So, (laughs) he is cute though, right? Yes. <laughs> we forgive you. Um, but what what this del- and like and I I loved London and I wasn't prepared to give up my life that I had in London to move somewhere cheaper to to get the bigger house to to bring up a family. And um, it also happened that I I got divorced about eight seven eight years ago. Um, so I didn't have a partner either, you know, which was a bit of it. Um, but what all of this did was it it gave me the luxury of time because I ever since leaving university, I'd sort of been on this, I suppose, treadmill of like, you've got to get a job. And then once you've got to get a job, then you've got to find a boyfriend. And then once you've found a boyfriend, then you live together for a bit and then you get a house with a mortgage and then you have a family. Right. That's how that's how it how it happens and I was you know I was going full steam 60 miles an hour towards that and then when me and my my husband decided that actually maybe this isn't right and we were talking children 
but I was like oh I don't really want children yet and he was like oh maybe I do but like it was like oh, okay maybe this won't work but then that getting the divorce and me being single for a bit and dating one sounds cheesy allowed me to really think about what I wanted um, and find and do the things that I wanted as well and thinking over the years because it's been a big thing for me coming coming to 40 it's been like if I do want children I need to make that decision pretty smart so um actually over the last two three years I've been logically trying to think about whether I wanted children and I don't so in the in the scheme of it like I was looking at those people that had children and yes I get the biological urges um but when I see how one the state of the planet and the population increase um, that's not something that I want to add to personally. And also the things that you've got to give up and the things that you I would want to provide for my offspring, I don't have those resources. And I really, really like my life. <laughs> and and I was like, do you know what? I I don't I don't want them and a big thing for me was so my family has adopted children in the past um, and they're lovely and they're very much part of the family but it gave me this thing of like I I just don't have that urge to have biological children and by not having that urge um in a way it's like it's just taken the pressure off me because I've been like well, maybe when I have my four-bedroomed mansion with garden, I can foster, I can adopt. Um, and I know that, you know, that's not a, a shoe-in, you know, you don't automatically get to do that, but that's a, a thing that I could provide. And yes, I might choose to do that later, but I'm just having biological children is just just not for me. It's really interesting your opening up about this topic because I don't think women talk about it enough they don't. I don't think women in STEM get to talk about it because we're trying to be women in STEM accepted in a very uh homogenous uh yeah. people that are not like us and so uh we don't want to talk about things that make us even more underrepresented <laughs> um, so thank you for being so open about um this this topic um i completely relate to you um i'm actually older than you which is uh i hate remembering how old i am but um look at your skin though it's amazing <laughs> the lighting it's the lighting um but no i just feel like um it's it's uh Okay, so what I was thinking when you were talking is your journey isn't conventional, right? You haven't had a conventional journey. It's not like, you know, people um, go to school and they look at your life and go, I want to do what you are, mm. have done. You know, they may look at what you're doing and go, that's so cool. I want to do that. But they won't necessarily dream of taking the exact path you've taken because... yeah. 
it sounds like you took the path in the moment, always choosing what was the right decision for the right time kind of thing. And I totally relate to that. That's also my story. I just made decisions in the moment. Um, basically, I never planned my life out, like five-year, 10-year mm. plans. And uh, it's turned out the way it has, and I'm really, really happy. But because I wasn't able to plan, um, I didn't know when to fit in motherhood. Because, of course, <laughs> I would love to have children, but I'm now the age I am, which is older than you. And I just am so like, you know, how come I never did that? You know, and I wonder if it's a thing for women who choose careers where there aren't many other women. Because we don't have a template. There, there could be that as well. Like, and I think... um <sighs> I just wasn't ready when other people were seemingly ready. Um, and I didn't know if it would come later or if, and there's a big, and I've done, I've done a hell of a lot of thinking around this. Cause, and I, I think one thing that struck me was I was, I was Googling once. Um, Cause I was like, I'm, I'm a big advocate for fostering and adoption. And, and, I was like, oh, is it, oh, maybe I do want children. And then I Googled one day, is it selfish to want children? Mm. And the only results that came up was, is it selfish to not have children? Mm. And I thought that was really telling because, and I have this discussion with people that are close to me where I'm like, actually, as a, and I say child free, as a child free woman, sometimes you are judged and look there's I'd say look down on and you know it's like oh you're you're immature or you you're not giving to society you're not and I'm like oh well actually like and you know people go oh no no it's silly no of course and it's like well no actually like there are small and I know we call it like microaggressions that happen that it's like no I I <laughs> my time is just as worthy as your time even though I don't have children. Um, and there is this, this little thing in society of where it's like, well, if you don't have children, then surely you're available. Um, mm. And I've found that really interesting. But yeah, I, I, I've done a lot of research into, is this what I want? Or is this what, and it comes back to the gender stereotyping, is this what I'm being... And it's not, you know, it's, it's, I'm not saying this is what happens for everyone, but is this what is society is persuading me that I want? Um, and yes, of course, there are the hormonal urges that come, but like I, hormonal urges are not the be on all end all when it comes to how I live my life. Like I don't, I don't run around the park naked. <laughs> you know, there are, there are certain things of where you can go, oh, yes, I'm feeling this, but this is not actually logically what I want and a big thing for me I should say came when so the guy I was dating I was dating a guy for three years um and he had three children and they were real they are brilliant absolutely brilliant three fiery determined smart women and 
I love them. I love them with all my heart. And I was like, I didn't realize that you could love a child that and I was so protective of them you know if something I and they they lived in over on over in Australia so they weren't living with us but when I was but you know I was like if anyone says anything about these girls like and yeah I didn't realize that you could love so much children that aren't your own and once I realized that was possible then the whole thing of like oh this I must have biological children thing just faded away because I was like wow it's really unimportant the, the DNA is really unimportant to me yeah gosh I mean I, I would say that for anyone who's listening to this um, part of the conversation you know it's a much bigger conversation that maybe you know a group of us women get together and talk about I hope that that is something that can happen um, at some point soon uh because i'm going through that my partner has two kids and i don't have my own biological kids and i'm i'm struck with how much love i can feel for somebody else's kids mm-hmm. um, uh but it's like a whole other conversation that you know i would love to delve into because um you know it's i'm discovering it now you know yeah it's not something that I was ever prepared for I've never been with um anyone that's got th- their own kids and so it, wow I mean it really is like a giant subject um but I guess like to bring it back to women in STEM like I really see you as someone who is just living out what you were put on this earth for (laughs) it's more I think your strongest message is you know what even if people don't understand what it is that drives you keep driving yeah absolutely and we do we do careers talks on this in terms of and we and like hats off to Siemens Siemens sponsor these talks and basically the talk is whatever you're into there is a career out there not a job a career that will really really suit you don't be driven into being pigeonholed really early on because it'll only make you unhappy if you know what I mean and yes you you'll get a job you might you might go to uni you'll get a job you'll find a partner, find a house, have children. Then at 40, 45, 50, you'll go, what have I, where's, where's my, why was I doing this job? Oh, I got this job to get the house to do. And it's like, actually life can be so much more than that. And I, and I know that there are, um, I call them the rich kids. There are the rich kids that are like, go where your heart follow, you know, follow your heart and this. And I, you know, I have, we haven't even covered how I got into TV without having anybody that I knew that was in TV and not even knowing how to go about it. And like, so I'm just settled down, lovely. Like, I I just, I look back and it makes me really emotional that I did it because I'm like, how how did I even know where to start and how did I keep on going and how, how I, oh yes, it's worked out. Oh, that's brilliant, you know, but it's like, oh gosh, that was... 
that was a challenge. Um, and and it all comes in ways that you don't expect. You know, you try a thousand things and then it comes in the one way that you haven't tried. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Like I've always just, I've wanted it to really just settle settle down. I really wanted to make the most of my life. And, and a bit of that, um, I suppose, comes from my mother because she... She gave up a lot to have children. My mum is the most intelligent person I know. She is phenomenal. And yet she gave up all work to have four kids. And wow. so I think, well, actually, I owe it to her to be as happy as I can and to make the biggest difference that I can because why, why wouldn't I? Mm. Actually, you know what, Fran? I'm just remembering your really, really inspiring speech that you made at the ENT Innovation Awards. And um, what really touched me the most was how you celebrated um, yourself and you had this kind of like, this kind of cringe tone about you where it's like, ah, I'm celebrating what I've done. Um, I'd love you to tell that story, but also, um, I feel like we haven't even touched the tip of the iceberg of how amazing you are. And I have heard your amazingness in this hour, but there's so much more to it. But why don't you tell that story? Um, and that will close us out of this episode for now, because I think that will really um, leave people with your key message. Fair, fair. Well, what, what, what story is it that you would like? I, I, I was, How I was communication because I think engineers, ah. natural communicators. Do you remember that story that you told? Yeah, yeah, the, the one, the one from the, from the, so, yeah, so, um, <laughs> basically, um, sorry, this, this is, oh, I'm such a dog mom at the moment. Um, so, so, yeah, so, yeah, like, I'm um, growing up no social media um and and so like there was basically if you had something worth worth saying you're invited onto mainstream media to say it and that was that was quite an honor and you you know there were the authorities that would invite you onto there and then social media came along and i have like this hate hate relationship with social media and as it as I got used to it, basically they were like, I thought there were these two groups of people. So like, I was very much a worker, got on with my job. And this was like one group of people. So the people that would do the work. And then there seemed to be this other group of people. <laughs> Just settle down, lovely. And there's this other group of people who would spend their time telling people about the work that they did. And I was like, wow, like if you've got such spare time to do these posts and videos about the work you're doing, maybe, maybe you should just pull some more weight actually at the coalface and do the work. And, and I sort of viewed them as a bit sort of profile raising, I suppose. And, and in my head, they were quite arrogant and, um, and <laughs> He's found the stall. Um, and then I was, so I would, 
So over over the time, basically, that social media was around, that's when my career, I suppose, took off and I ended up presenting on CBBC for a while. And I was getting invited to like ceremonies and networking events. And I'd be at these networking events and people would be telling me about the work that I had done. And um, so not the TV work because they saw that, but I'm, I'm a producer and I would produce events. And so they'd be like, oh, this thing happened and this was great. And this, and I'd be like, yeah, that's, I did that. Like, but they, they didn't know that and they weren't asking my opinion. Um, they were basically, I suppose, explaining my own work to me and uh, without wanting any input from me. And I was just getting really frustrated by it. So I went to my agent and I was like, what am I doing wrong? Like people are patronizing me. And, and he was like, well, do you tell them about this work you do? Do you tell anyone about this work that you do that's not the TV related stuff? And how are people meant to know? You know, are you assuming that they know? Isn't that arrogant? And it was that use of the word arrogant that I was like, oh my gosh, there I've been all the time. Hold the phone. Bitcoin! Bitcoin! <laughs> I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> Have you got my... Hang on, he's, he's got my sound protector. I need, I need to get this. You can't eat that. You can't eat that. So there I had been all the time thinking that it was the people that were telling people what they did that were arrogant, whereas actually I was being arrogant to assume they already knew that they they had looked up all the stuff that I'd done, like done all this research in these days when we're bombarded with so much information for them to take the time out <laughs> to look up about me with information that I wasn't even putting out there. And so, yeah, so my message about communication was it's not arrogant to tell people about the stuff you've done. It's arrogant to assume they already know. And mm. so make communication part of the innovation process, because like in that room, there were amazing people that were coming up with brilliant inventions and things like that, that like actually for them to be implemented people need to know about them and welcome them with open arms and if they don't hear about them that's just not going to happen yeah well fran you are amazing <laughs> everything you're doing is really helping to um to boost the uh the workforce in manufacturing and making that's and what i'd love engineering um you're inspiring just as a person in their own right we haven't even heard the half of what you're doing <laughs> done. but um thank you for but also bear in mind just i know we are gonna wrap up but bear in mind the reason i got in touch with you because i was like what you're doing is incredible so like i take all of these compliments that you're giving to me and i'm like oh, yeah that's nice but you know like you are you're doing amazing things yourself. So yeah, thank thank you for inviting me on and, and doing this podcast in the first place. And we've covered questions that I didn't think would be covered and I didn't know that I had the answers to these questions <laughs> either. Turns out I do. Yeah, I always feel that these chats are um, kind of 
taking a pause and and kind of reflecting off each other and just um and and just and just consolidating how far we've come and i think we've both come a long way given that we we were graduating at a time where women really weren't meant to be doing what we're doing so <laughs> hats on the back to both of us hey yeah may we continue to have an impact and do our do do this kind of service for other people so absolutely absolutely send the ladder back down yeah so thanks Brent. <laughs> thank you so so much Thanks for listening and please do subscribe to this podcast and maybe even rate and review it if you can. The more ratings and reviews and the more interest from those trusty algorithms, which could help to increase the reach of this show. And you can watch the video recording of this conversation on YouTube on my new series, Esteemed. It's all about self-discovery, self-evolution and inclusivity on innovation. So let's just all strive to be the best versions of ourselves and celebrate others being themselves too. As always, be kind and loving, and I wish you all a great week.